I come down the bottom of the whatever tower and I'm looking out into Manhattan and the place is just teeming with people in traffic and I, I don't know what to do and I just think I'm going to just run through the door into traffic. I'm just going to run into traffic. I can't cope with this kind of humiliation and pain and I just got to end it. I just got to end it. Somebody comes up to me in my uh, periphery, the guy, and he, and he goes, are you Howie Mandel? And I said, yes. He goes, weren't you just on Howard Stern? And I said, yeah. And he said two words, which meant something very different then, but I wasn't really clear on what it meant. And he went, me too. I went, what? And he goes, me too. And I went, you do what? Because I have the same issues. Welcome to Imposters, the show where I talk to world-class execs, athletes, and entertainers about their personal challenges and how overcoming those challenges has shaped their careers and lives for the better. I'm your host, Alex Lieberman, co-founder and executive chairman of Morning Brew. My guest today is Howie Mandel. If you're in America, you definitely know Howie as the guy who graced your TV screens to say deal or no deal. In the 2000s, he was the host of that iconic game show that reached over 20 million homes on its first night of viewing. And before that massive commercial success, Howie was a stand-up comedian and he was selling out clubs across the country, but there was one big struggle that stuck with him throughout his career journey, his OCD. Howie has been public about his OCD for a while. We actually hear the story today of when his OCD was revealed to the world on The Howard Stern Show and how that initially scarred him, but then allowed him to speak about his mental health openly. It was an open and honest conversation that made me feel seen in my own journey with OCD. A quick warning for listeners, this conversation does include a brief mention of suicide. If you or someone you know is struggling, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 800-273-8255. We've also included some resources in the show notes. My conversation with Howie Mandel after the break. Howie. Thanks for being here. Oh, sir. I'm sorry. <laughs> sir Howie Mandel. Um, okay, so you just got cleared from basically being in quarantine and isolation for the last two weeks in your daughter's bedroom, correct? Yes. Um, well, so my daughter, the, that particular daughter is uh, 37 years old and married with two kids and moved out of the house 20 years ago to go to college. But I got, you know, because as everybody who goes to work and has to go to a place, you get tested. Yep. And about three weeks ago, I tested positive for COVID. I thought I had a cold, so I just I was had, say, what were you feeling at the time? I just had a little cough and not, I've never, I, I didn't really get sick and, but I had COVID and, um, you know, I'm not a young guy and my wife isn't uh, also not a young guy. <laughs> and, um, so I didn't want her to get sick. She has, um, asthma. So I followed the protocol and that was to quarantine. Mm -hmm. So I chose my daughter's old nest and therein lies the, the rub because I, um, so I was quarantined mm -hmm. and I've been very open about my mental health Yep. and, uh, I have OCD, I have depression, I have anxiety, I have a whole litany. You got the whole, the whole potpourri. 
Yes. Yeah. I don't know if it's a potpourri because it stinks. And <laughs> potpourri usually connotates like a nice That's smell. Fair. That's yeah, what yeah. you put in a drawer. Okay, we'll use litany. A litany. Yeah. Thank you. That's better. So the issue is that beyond the help that I get from being surrounded by loved ones and friends who are incredibly supportive and my medications, part of my coping skill in life is distraction. And that's a big part. And, you know, comedy is a big distraction. Laughter is a big distraction. Work is a big distraction. So nothing is harder for me than to do nothing and to be locked away and not to be visually and mentally stimulated, you know. So by day three, it's probably the darkest I have felt in a decade. And I, I talk about it on my podcast, but I project more fun than I'm actually feeling. Yeah. And I say things sometimes with a smile or I act silly or whatever. Why but, do you think that is? Like, is that just your way of coping with it? Is it? Yeah, that's my way of coping with it. In the toughest predicaments of my life, when I'm really unhappy, when I'm devastated, I have a tendency to laugh. Yeah. I don't know why that is, but that's my uh, go-to physical... Uh, it's your crutch. Yeah, and and I, I just need it. That's my bridge to sanity is laughter and being loud and being silly and being, you know, I grew up feeling incredibly awkward, you know, and that awkwardness manifested itself in outrageousness. We'll talk about that for a sec. When you say you felt awkward growing up, like what did that actually look like? Well, physically, you know, I was, um, even in high school, I was four foot 10. I grew real late. I was gonna say, yeah, I was going to say, you're like, you're relatively tall. Now I'm five ten, so yeah, I got a, I got a foot me. on that. But but the, but the point is, I was four foot ten in high school. Um, my voice hadn't changed. I didn't shave. I had really long hair. Um, I got diagnosed later. You know, nobody gets diagnosed, and nobody even goes to a therapist. So, you know, uh, later on, I got diagnosed with uh, ADHD. And one of the things is, you know, you kind of um, are I incredibly impulsive without any slowing down a thought process with ramifications. And, and also, it's really hard for me physically to just sit for any amount of time. And, and in high school, I think it's still prominent to try to fit in. Everybody looks to see what everybody else is wearing, what everybody else is listening to, what style they are. Standing out is not an asset in growing up. So the fact that I stood out, you know, the first time I really felt comfortable or I felt like I was part of the party was with my parents. My parents, comedy was a big part of my life. And my mother and father were both real fans of, of comedy. And to that end, you know, at night when I was like four and five years old, I would hear them in the living room. My dad would bring home an album and they'd be laughing at the album or they'd be watching the tonight show or something and they'd be i hear them laughing and you know you just know that laughter you want to be part of it so as a 4 year old or a 5 year old i would run into the living room and they'd be listening to a comic who'd be doing a stand up routine uh, about his mother-in-law and i have no point of reference i don't even know what a mother-in-law <laughs> is so yep. they would be laughing and it made me feel like even more of an outcast in my own home because i didn't get it you know, and uh, what's funny, dad, what's funny, uh, but that man is funny. Why is that man funny? So the very first time I connected 
And it's like it was yesterday. And I've been trying to regain that moment every waking moment of my life now was on a Sunday night, they were watching Candid Camera. And Candid Camera is the first punked that ever existed. It was started by a gentleman by the name of Alan Funt, who started on radio. And it was a huge success on television. It was must-see TV. Which, by the way, it's amazing how these formats, like they get adapted to new mediums. But like Candid Cam is still popular. It's just in TikTok form and it's not called Candid Cam. Like, right, pranking. Yeah, exactly. It wasn't, he didn't call it a prank. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what it is, is probably the most relatable kind of art form in the sense that you can either sit back and just enjoy what's happening or you can kind of immerse yourself in it and go, oh, how would I react? Or be empathetic to whatever's happening to the people there. But I remember the very first one I saw is he said, I'm going to be the boss of this office and we're going to hire so-called uh, receptionists to come in. And I'm going to tell them that the most important thing, I'm going out for lunch, but the most important thing for them to do is not miss a call. Every call that I receive is monumental. They better not miss one call. And that was the, the setup for the prank or the joke or the gag or the candid camera was he showed me and the audience that they had attached a rope to the leg of one of the desks and the rope went across the room through a hole in a wall to the next room. And what they proposed to do was when the phone rang, when the unsuspecting re receptionist would go to reach for the receiver, they would pull the, the rope and the whole, the whole desk would just slide away. She wouldn't be able to reach the phone. It would slide away. And it, th that was an eye-opening moment because, first of all, as a five-year-old, I understood. You got it. it. You visual, got the joke. We got it. It was a fun moment to turn to my parents and go, oh my God, I can't wait. I can't wait to see what's going to happen. Like we were all in this together. It was so, we were just laughing even before it happened. And it's kind of that feeling when you uh, go to a surprise party and they yeah. go, she's coming up the driveway. She's coming up the driveway. You know, it's a You feel you're, like you're in on the joke. And you're this was the first the time joke. you ever felt that. Included. Yeah. There was such a deep, guttural, emotional, joyful laugh that in my house, my mom, my dad, and me just had that. And I went, oh my God, this feels so good. Yeah, Like we're all, I wasn't able to articulate it, but it's the first time I felt like whatever was going on in my mind, it was going on in their minds too. So we were all connected because I think that everybody feels disconnected. Everybody feels it's only me. I'm the only one that thinks this. I'm the only one that feels like this. That's why we have those reoccurring dreams of showing up at a party in your underpants. Yep. So it's just the, the, the epitome of being uncomfortable or a fish out of water or whatever. So in that moment where we all laughed, it was that connection. And from that moment on, I've always tried to recapture it because that felt good. When I feel bad, that, that feels good. I feel like since humans could speak, we used humor to cope with uncomfortable situations. Laughter binds us together, and I love hearing the childhood stories of comedians finding their voice because it's usually filled with laughter being used as a real coping mechanism for trauma or, in Howie's case, his undiagnosed OCD. But before all of that, Howie was just playing around and finding his voice. He told one story when he pranked someone in school that he still uses in his act. You know, they're funny stories that I tell now in my act about yeah. getting thrown out of school, but I hired a company to put an addition onto the library. You know, I called through the yellow pages. I called a, a construction company and had a guy come out 
to give an estimate. I'd given my name, Howie Mandel, and I'd like you to, I'm calling from so-and-so school, and I'd love you to come out and, you know, measure for a 10-foot extension into the soccer field on that side. The only thought I had is, this is really funny because there's no reason for me to be getting an addition onto the school. It doesn't mean anything. And the fun of it for me was going to be, I, I made an appointment at three o'clock or whatever. At three o'clock, I would be in math on the second floor, being able to look down on the soccer field. And I alone was enjoying the image of this guy, you know, with a clipboard and tape measure and nobody yeah. knew what was happening. And it was just me. Now, who is that for? And that's the, that's the question. Who is that for? I didn't even think like, it might be more fun if I tell three other people, right. I didn't have any friends though. If I tell three other people, look out on the field, I called and I'm getting a guy to measure. I didn't even think that far. It was yeah. just me. Which is so interesting because asking those three other people would have been more similar to feeling that kind of like inside joke that you felt with your family where it wasn't just you, it was a few others who were in on the right, joke also. But as my five-year-old self, I think what I computed was if you do weird things, I'm, I'm, I'm now analyzing of course, what felt good about it. you didn't have this thought it. at the time. No. Yeah, yeah. So my, my thing was, if you do these weird things, these weird inappropriate make things, you feel good. it's always going to yeah. make you feel good. Yeah. It had nothing to do with being a show. And insofar as not even thinking about being in trouble, like giving my real name. So it was kind of funny. I'd be sitting there in math, looking out the window, <laughs> giggling like that. And the teacher would go, Howie, what, 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 what's going yeah. on? I go, nothing. So now I'm sitting in class, looking out the window going, <laughs> how much of an outcast do I seem? Like what person wants to hang with me? I'm just giggling. And if I tell them what I'm getting, <laughs> look, there's a guy measuring. <laughs> yeah, they're just like, what's going on with yeah, this I'm guy? Just a, a yeah, I'm just insane. Yeah. yeah. So, and the principal would go out there and talk with the guy, the guy would leave. And then there was an announcement, Howie Mandel, please come down to the office. And then it was kind of fun for me. And I don't know why, and I can't articulate why. He'd go, do you have anything to do with this guy who was measuring the field? And I'd go, yes, yes. So you called you you, you called him. And I, I was always very entertained by the awkwardness of the situation. If somebody else felt awkward and they didn't understand what was going on, yeah. was also you, my- You enjoyed that. I enjoy awkward more than anything. Yeah. So he'd go, wait, 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 wait. So you called and you asked this guy to get, to put an addition. And I would say like things like, no, no, I did not. And he'd go, but he said he gave your name. I go, but let me finish. I'm getting three estimates. This may not be the guy. <laughs> and it, it was kind of funny how, the, you know, for me alone and nobody else there, no audience, just me. Yeah. He'd go, okay, wait right here. And then he called my parents in. And then my parents would come in. And it was so joyful for me to watch him. You know, your son, Howard, here, has uh, called. He's getting estimates on audition. Uh, audition. To watch him literally explain the ridiculousness and of what you did. to watch my mom or my dad's lip kind of quiver and they'd bite it. And, yeah. you know, because they knew the situation was kind of dire in the sense that this is authority. What are we going to do with our son? I hope yep. I was asked to leave the school and this happened ad nauseums like so many times. And to that end, even today, and my, my parents always did, my wife does, and even my kids will go, who, who is the joke for? And it's always, I live by that adage, you know, the comics always say, if I could just make one person laugh, I'm doing my job for me. It's me. Yeah, you are the one person. I am the one person. Yeah. 
Well, it's so interesting because it's uh, it's both a beautiful thing, but it's also like I I feel a little bit of a sadness towards it in some way because of you know why why is it that Howie has or you said you're 67 now. I'll be 67 this year. For, for 66 years, 66 and a half years, why has he tried to make jokes, not even make other people laugh, make himself laugh? So I think that success, yeah. you know, this is a business. Yeah. And, you know, if somebody asked me, when did you think you were successful? And for me, in April 19th, 1977, I got dared in Toronto to get up on stage at the Yuck Yucks Comedy Club. And when I found that outlet, Accidentally, to me, that is success. See, success is, for me, to have something in your life, when you open your eyes, just something to look forward to. You know, the connotation of the uh, working America now is hump day. Hump day is Wednesday. And Wednesday, the connotation is you're halfway through the shit you don't want to do. Most people just go to work. Yeah, you're almost there. The weekend is almost here. Yes. And and what and what's going to happen on the weekend is you're just not going to have to do the shit you're doing all week to pay yep. the rent. Yep. So if you can give yourself in life one thing to do that you're really passionate about, that you're really, it's it's that success. Yeah. And happiness is the and contentment is the currency that could make you rich and is the richness of someone's life. Uh, Steve Jobs, you know, he's just going to work with his friend Wozniak in the garage and just take calligraphy in yep. in college and just into this, like, think about it on paper. IBM was further along. Like, yeah. why are you going to take this ridiculous kid yeah. from Northern California is just going to take on IBM and make something that's obviously going to cost more Yep. Like why, and why does anybody even need a computer? Yeah, the choice couldn't have been at that point for money. But if you think about everything, Elon Musk, you know, people say Tesla and, and, and all, the only difference between anybody listening to this and Elon Musk or Steve Jobs is he did it and you didn't. And, and that's the only difference. These are not superhuman beings. Yeah. We all have that capacity. Yep. We don't all have that passion. Totally. And you know, the thing that I ended up finding is this distraction of of being silly. Yeah. And living in the moment and entertaining myself ended up with no this was not my path, but ended up paying my rent. Yeah. I found something that is my you know, my, my survival. It's your outlet. Yeah, it, it is your greatest tool. And it's interesting because you talk about when you first realized that getting a laugh and making a laugh was important to you is when you, you felt awkward, you felt out of place. But at some point, and I, I'm interested in when you realize this in your life, right? Like you, you speak openly about OCD, you speak openly about anxiety and depression, but you've had those things be a part of your life far longer then you've talked about it or even potentially worked on it yourself. When did you first start noticing these things? Maybe not when you realized it was OCD, but when were the, did these start to be prominent in your life? I don't remember a time in my life when they're not prominent. And so many people, and maybe a lot of listeners will say, you know, I have OCD or I have a little bit of OCD. I don't know that you can't have a little, if you really have it and you're diagnosed like I was, it is... It's crippling 
crippling. Yep. It's not that you don't like, nobody likes germs on their hands or nobody, you know, people have obtrusive thoughts come into their mind or yep. rituals that they have to do once in a while. But if it, and, and using the word crippling, if it just stops you so you can't move forward, everybody knows that Howard Hughes, no matter how successful, in quotes, he was, ended up at the end of his life yep. naked in a room, pissing into a, a jar. I can't tell you how close I am to that each and every day, you know, and how, you know, it, it could tip that way for me. So it's, you know, life and mental health is a, is a continual balancing act to not go there, to not have that happen. So when did I realize that I had an issue? I've always known I had an issue. I always knew that I was uncomfortable. I always felt in mental pain I always felt it really hard to conduct myself like I assumed everybody else was conducting themselves. And not until way into my 40s, and, and I would find my own little stupid coping skills in as far as being uh, forcing the people around me to do these things that would make me more comfortable. Like if I'm sitting in a room with you and I'm watching where your hand went, your yep. hand touched something, then before I sit down with you, then you have to go in and wash your hands. Yep. And you have to, and that's just a small little piece of it, but eventually- You're constantly analyzing. Everything. Yeah. And it's tiring. Yeah. And it's even more tiring for the people around you. And my wife finally gave me an ultimatum and said, you know, I can't do this anymore. When was that? Mid forties, early, yeah. four, four, I was about 43, 44. Okay, so like 20, 20 odd years ago. 20 years ago. Yeah. And she goes, I can't do this anymore. And I said, I don't know what to do. She goes, you need to go get help. And if you don't, if you don't, then I'm out. And that's the, that was the strongest ultimatum I ever got. And I didn't uh, believe in therapy, didn't understand. I come from a time when I think it still exists. There's a huge stigma you know, uh, up against mental health. You know, you say to somebody in an office today, oh, my back's out, and everybody gives you a card to their chiropractor. Yep. But if you say, I can't function, or I can't stop crying, or I can't, I just can't cope. People have a thought. Right. And you can't say, you know what, I'll be back in an hour, I'll, outside of maybe New York and LA, but <laughs> you can't say, I'm, I'm going to go see my psychiatrist. <laughs> yeah. Howie is saying something pretty eye-opening here. Depending on where you're listening to the show, the community that you're living in might feel one way or another about seeking therapy or other mental health treatment. Even though it's 2022, mental health attention is a very localized idea. I think people in New York and LA take for granted that everyone believes in therapy when that's not really the case in large parts of America. So if you're in those areas, please know that therapy is something that is readily available in person or online, and it can be life-changing to speak about your problems to a professional. So after Howie was diagnosed with OCD, he said that he felt a little better knowing that his thoughts weren't just his own. And then he went on The Howard Stern Show. So I went and I got diagnosed. And even though I got diagnosed and um, there was a plan put in place which made me feel a little better that, hey, this is something. Yeah. This is not just me. And then accidentally, and I talk about it in my book, you know, I was on the Howard Stern show. Yeah, I love the story. So I'm on the Howard Stern show and he had, uh, I think it was the guy from Puppetry of the Penis on the Which, show. Which by the way, I had never heard of prior to you mentioning it, but uh, 
quite you know a title. It is? Never saw the play, but I think this guy, not a theater person, yeah. but, and I don't know that this is considered real theater, but <laughs> this guy can do, uh, he ties his penis into different shapes and he plays characters with his penis. Quite impressive. It is. I guess every night he ends up with a standing ovation. <laughs> <laughs> so the the thing about, he he, he was showing his wares on the Howard Stern show and he was touching himself. Yep. And I was in the studio and he was talking to me about whatever I was doing. And as I said just earlier to you, I'm kind of cognizant of everything that's going on in the room. This guy's touching his penis. Yep. And then they finished with him. You know, he had promoted his show and he left. And I noticed that, you know, there's no Purell, there's no sink there. He yeah, there are now penis remnants his, everywhere. Everything he touched, I was yeah. just keeping track of whatever... Uh, handle he touched whatever and he leaves the room and he he grabs the door and he opens the door and I go oh my god there's his penis is all <laughs> over the door it's over the armrest it's on the he took off his headset I don't want to go near that headset his penis <laughs> is on that I just uh, that, that was a and I, it, it became like an episode of Charlie Brown where the teacher used to talk you'd hear wah wah wah, yeah, wah, yeah, wah. Yeah, yeah. that's how the rest of the interview went for with me and Howard Stern I couldn't hear a thing I was just marking every spot that I had to my escape route yeah so I got up and at the end of my interview, he said, thanks, goodbye. And I went to the door and I said, can somebody open the door? He goes, why? I go, I'm not going to touch it. The guy's touching his penis. <laughs> he touched the door. They go, just open the door. So I went to go grab some tissue and they thought it was funny. They knocked the tissue out of my hand. Then I tried to do something with my sleeve and they said, no, just open the door. And I go, I can't, I can't. And they were goading me to touch the door and and I started having a panic attack. Yep. And I I felt like I was going to have a heart attack. I was going to end up in the ER. I was going to pass out. And just out of desperation, I just said, Howard, this is real. I have uh, something called obsessive compulsive disorder. And if you don't open the door for me, you're going to have to call 911 because I'm not going to make it. So he opened the door for me and I walked out in the hall and I could hear them. They go, whoa, that was, that was intense. And I hear that in the speaker in the hallway, and I realize that all got broadcast. Yep. I thought I was in a commercial. And my heart, I never felt it was like the darkest, scariest, most shocking moment. My heart dropped into my stomach, and I go, holy shit. I just broadcast to the nation that I'm mentally ill. And number one, uh, my family is going to hear this. My kids are going to have to go to school. It's going to be humiliating. I just ruined my kid's life and my wife's life. And I also want to continue to work. And every time you are getting a job somewhere, you get a checkup. And I just want to, who's going to ensure? I just said that I have mental health problems. Who's going to put me in any kind of production? So my career is over. My family is over. Life as I know it is over. And it got, I get, as I'm walking down the hall in the elevator, it's just getting darker and darker and more desperate and desperate. And I come down the bottom of the whatever tower and I'm looking out into Manhattan and the place is just teeming with people in traffic. And I, I don't know what to do. And I just think I'm going to just run through the door into traffic. I'm just going to run into traffic. I can't cope with this kind of humiliation and pain. And I just got to end it. I just got to end it. And I walk out and the places, I never felt more lonely in my life. And, and I walk out onto the sidewalk and I'm looking down, just trying to get the, the, the wherewithal to just run into traffic. And somebody comes up to me in my uh, periphery and I didn't look. It was a guy and he, and he goes, are you Howie Mandel? And I said, yes. 
goes, weren't you just on Howard Stern? And I said, yeah. And my heart even dropped deeper and higher. I got my, let's going to be one, two, three, go. And he said two words, which meant something very different then, but I wasn't really clear on what it meant. And he went, me too. I went, what? And he goes, me too. And I went, you do what? He goes, I have the same issues. So cool to hear you mention it. I went, you have the same issues? And that kind of like woke me up and snapped me out of it. And I, I went home. And at that time, there was no, um, I'm sure there was an internet, but there wasn't, uh, nobody was emailing or there was no Twitter. There was no social media. It took about a week and I started getting, I got one letter and then five letters and then 50 letters and all these people going, you know, I suffer from what you talked about and thank you so much for talking. And as much as they were thanking me and it made, and it comforted them in knowing that they weren't alone, you have no idea how it comforted me that I wasn't alone. And I realized that my mission became just to let's remove the stigma. Let's talk about this. Let's get everyone help. And then I realized aside from OCD, and aside from ADHD and depression and anxiety and all the things that I mentioned, I don't think you could be a human. I don't think you could be in this human condition without needing help in some way, giving yourself a coping skill to get through whatever we need to get through in life. Listen, nobody's getting out of here alive. We're all going to lose loved ones. We're all going to be at some point diagnosed with something. We're all going to have a fucked up relationship someplace that doesn't work out. How do you cope with these things? You're all going to get married or maybe even have a child. That's a lot of pressure. All these things inhibit our productivity in life. Yeah, no one's absent of struggle. And the thing that really makes me sad to think about is there are so many people out there that either don't have access to the same things, don't realize that it's okay for them to talk about it. We all have access. Yeah. We just don't identify the access. The access could be just talking to the person on the bus of course. sitting next to you. Yeah. And they don't realize what they are feeling is a problem. They, they just learn to accept it. And or they don't, uh, I think when they realize it's a problem, they don't think that there is a, uh, a remedy or that anybody else will ever understand. It's easier as somebody who hid a problem for 43 years, and I still have the problem, uh, that was easier to me in thought and in theory than even getting help. Just even admitting that there was a problem was harder than getting help. Look, as I was mentioning to you before this, I've had OCD my whole life. It doesn't manifest in the form of clean OCD or germophobia. It manifests in other ways, but it has been incredibly crippling. Uh, you know, full-time job at points where I could not run a company well because of the experience that I was having. I could barely go to work. And I, I'm sure, as you know, like OCD can be hereditary. I don't know if anyone in your family has it, but I got it from my dad. My dad had clean OCD his whole life. But it's whether it's clean or not, what it is, as I explained to It's people, rumination and it's compulsion. Right. And it's, you know, a skipping record. Yeah, you exactly. Know, it's just a skipping record that you can't Yeah, you're in Groundhog past, Day you know, constantly. And any thought that we have, and whether it's cleanliness, whether it's a ritual, yep. whether it's a negative thought, yep. whether it's violent thoughts and dark thoughts going in, that goes into everybody's head. Yes. What happens is as soon as it gets into your or my head, we latch and it doesn't, and we can't yep. move on from it. Yeah. And you know, what I was going to say is for my dad, right? Like he experienced clean OCD and kind of with the level of severity that you've experienced in your life. And he never talked to a therapist. He never had medication. It just makes me feel so upset for him right. that he never 
he lived with this for so long and there are so many people. But it's who our have. society. You know, yeah. if you look at our society, everything, everything kind of makes its way back to mental health. Yep. It all ties back to your way of thinking. And if we could solve or at least have a safety net for mental health in the world, this would be a safer, it is the answer for world peace, for world productivity, yeah. for world success, for happiness in every way. And it, it, it pains me, I've spoken on Capitol Hill, that even the insurance companies will not parody the same amount of finance yep. that if you have an x-ray and you break a leg, they'll pay a fortune for it. But if you say, I can't function or leave the house, you can't get funding for help. Totally. You know, unless you're suicidal, then they'll lock you up. But up until that point and after that point, there is nothing. Yeah. And I know people who have been in horrible, horrible situations and they're just reaching out there and they're looking for help. So, I mean... We talked about in your childhood, in your teenage years, in your adulthood, how much like this impacted you. So like AGT comes out May 31st, you have your new Netflix show. Like you need to be out in the world for these things. Like even- Yeah, the dichotomy between how I feel and what I do- It's health versus career for you. No, I think it's health is my career. My career is my health. I found stand-up comedy. The thing is, as a, you know, instinctually, I feel like I would like to hide away. Yeah. But if I do hide away, then I'm with You're, myself. Yeah. So being out there is a great distraction, but being out there is not my, you know, I don't want to be that close to people. Of course. But I have to be. And and then in the midst of all this stuff, I just came back from Santa Fe on Netflix. I have a new show called Bullshit, yeah. which I'm really excited about. But in the midst of doing that, it kind of, it's too noisy to to think of any of those negatives. So when I'm immersed in whatever I'm immersed in, I can forget about it for the moment. Yeah. Out of curiosity, do you feel like you've improved in your relationship with OCD over time? I would answer yes, except that at, as crippled as I am, you know, it's like if somebody's paralyzed from the waist down, they cannot walk. But if you get them a wheelchair, they can get from place to place. They still can't walk. They're just as crippled as they were, but they have found a way to get from point A to point B yep. without walking. So I, I feel like mentally crippled a lot, but I have these skill sets and tools. And sometimes the outside the wheelchair is whether it's my medication or my therapy or just the distraction that allows me to roll through and, and be somewhat productive. Even though Howie's physical body isn't affected by his OCD, the mental effects for him are quite similar. It can feel like a full-time job to manage your mental health and disordered thinking, so it's important to give yourself some patience and forgiveness rather than judging yourself based on productivity, like Howie mentioned. We're gonna take a quick break here, but when we get back, we'll get into Howie's career after comedy and how he managed major imposter syndrome, being the first comedian to host a game show. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. 
Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. I want to go in a, in a different direction for a second. You've had a number of challenges in your career, as we all do. As, as you said, it's a boxing match, and I think you put it well. One of those challenges was OCD. The other challenge, I would say, is just like at times really having question marks about where your career was going. Well, I think that goes for everybody's career. You know, I've become a lot more introspective as I got gotten older. And business kind of imitates life. You know, you find something comfortable. Yep. You find something successful for yourself in the moment. And then all your energy and your power goes into just hanging on to that. Yep. That's what happened to Blockbuster. Yep. You know, everybody was renting tapes. Let's just hang on to that. Didn't turn out too well. They could have been Netflix. Yep. You know, and they try try to buy them. Right. They offered that to buy them for $50 million. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and in show business, you know, I hit on this dare. I hit in the early eighties and luckily and found quite good success as far as a stand-up comic. I'm, I was selling out yep. arenas, you know, I was doing 10,000 tickets a night, two shows a night. I was on St. Elsewhere. I was on a dramatic show on NBC. And by uh, 2004, I, I still wanted to do stand-up comedy, but I wasn't selling out clubs. So if you had a club that had 500 seats, you'd probably have 300 in there. Why, do you, I, why, why did that happen? Was it, were you just becoming quote unquote less relevant at the time? I think that the uh, world were changing. On. Yeah. Yeah. People were doing different things. You yeah. look at, you know, even now I'm, you know, I'm on TikTok and yep. I have got 10 million followers. I was going to say you're crushing but on TikTok. But, but to be honest with you, I surround myself and we're sitting here in a, in a podcast studio where some of the people that work with me are, the, most of the people that work with me are in their thirties or younger and in my son and I work with my kids and I do a podcast with my daughter and my biggest fuel and it has always been, is curiosity. I think curiosity keeps you moving forward. And I would see TikTok or I would see, you know, something on YouTube that had, you know, 100 million clicks. And I'd go up to my son or my daughter and go, why? Like, is and, and everybody's going, this is hysterical. This is funny. And I would say, I don't get it. Tell me why this is funny. Tell me what I'm doing. Tell me why people are... And that's kind of like my analogy of music. Before, comedy was so different. Comedy, you know, you watch a sitcom now from the 50s. There aren't that many that really hold up. Oh, yeah, most of them are not going to land with you. No, even the 70s, yeah. you know, and the 80s. Totally. They, they don't really hold up. And I remember thinking they were hysterical at the time. And yeah. and people's tastes just change. That's how we we evolve. Well, it's even in like the the 25 to 30 minutes of of knowing you, like you walk in here and there's this product Proto in this amazing space that we're in that includes the podcast studio. And it's an amazing product that has basically this very high definition, real hologram that you can watch a concert, you can uh, potentially have meetings happen with people that are not in the space physically, but through proto. And when you walked in, you were asking so many questions to one of the founders of this business, because I could just tell you were just genuinely curious about it. But even like you followed your curiosity, found out about this. From no, C- I saw it online. I saw it on social media. I called the guy and now I'm going to be, I'm on their board. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but, but, but that's, I realized a lot of people my age are no longer curious. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. But 
you realize that when you were really young, you were just curious. Yeah. And curiosity is, and that's why I'm in this space that we're in. I I, I had a deal. I'll, I'll go back so we were a little yeah. more linear. Yeah. But my, 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 my career was waning. And I'm also interested in real estate and entrepreneurial things and that, that leads into what we're, we're doing here. And I said, you know, I just, if I can go on once or twice a week at the comedy store, uh, I would love to do just my real estate and just that I'm going to leave the business. And, and this was like 2004, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then in 2005, I got a call to host a game show. And I said, no, because at that time, your currency was irony or comedy the game show host was the punchline. Like there were no comics doing, no comic has ever done a game show, not of my generation. So I said, no. And then they called me back and they said, it's the biggest game show in the world. And they go, you're perfect for this. We, we can't do this without you. You're perfect for this. And my wife said, listen, you're leaving your career anyway, go do it. So she made me, cause I'm also annoying to live with. So she just <laughs> wanted me out of the house and I did it. So I went in Monday morning and they started the game and I go, welcome to deal or no deal. And let's meet our first contestant. And the first contestant, I did 500 episodes. I'll never forget. Karen Van. I said, tell me about yourself. And Karen Van had never owned a home, never had any health insurance, had three young boys that were there, her kids. And I noticed that on the set, because she's not in show business, there was a glaze over her, like she was in another world. Yeah. And it's there was 500 people in yeah, the audience. There's 12 cameras. There's all these lights. Yeah. There's all... And uh, the first offer, I think, from the banker was something like $20,000. And she's from like Iowa. She was like from someplace where that would change the life. You know, $20,000 could buy her health insurance, could at least be a down payment on a home, could pay her rent for years and years and years. This would change that life that she just told me about. And without any thought, with that glaze in her eyes, just enjoying herself of being on TV in Hollywood, she goes, no deal. And then... uh, you know, would uh, things like that go through your head while you were hosting it? Like how yeah. big of a difference that could make for her that amount Absolutely, of money? Absolutely. Cause you know, yes, money is very important to me. Yeah. And then I thought, oh my God, it's not about me getting a laugh. This is another human being. This is the first time that maybe I'm going to bear some responsibility for how this ends up for another person. Yeah. And I don't want you to make a ridiculous decision based on you're having fun and you're laughing at me. So I started talking to her. Like I talked to my five-year-old and I would say, Karen, the offer is, listen to me, the offer is $50,000, $50,000, more than twice what you make a year, $50,000 is guaranteed or you have to open up five more cases for a chance, a guarantee of $50,000 or a chance at $1 million deal or no deal. And I would, I, you know, I'd over-enunciate. Yeah. Your tone was just shouting, take the freaking deal. Basically. Yeah. And and I threw all my comedy by the wayside. I threw everything. And it was just about making sure that these people left in a better position financially than they had showed up. In. This moment was a watershed moment in Howie's professional mentality. This is the first time that Howie the Comedian took a backseat. That kid that pranked people in school for his own pleasure wasn't the same person who was hosting a game show begging people to take a deal that was good for their financial position. And even though Howie was nervous and uncomfortable in this position, the success was immediate. Deal or No Deal earned over 20 million viewers the first night of its airing, and the numbers just went up from there to become the biggest game show in the world. Because Howie took a leap, 
even though he felt like a major imposter not doing stand-up, he was able to fully revitalize his career. I landed in Miami. After 30 seconds, somebody noticed me and went, deal or no deal? And my career was revived. And it's to this day, deal or no deal is the biggest success of my life. I made a deal with Universal. I started a production company. So I bought, we were sitting in a, in a place, I bought 30,000 square feet. And it's just a place for me to play. I was gonna say, it literally and, feels like an adult's playhouse in here. So it is. So if I see something online, like this portal, yeah, the, yeah. which I think is gonna be the next, it's really no cool. idea. They just uh, finished their first round of, of funding. Big people like P. Diddy and other, you know. And Howie Mandel. Are involved and, and uh, I think this is gonna be the next generation yeah. of communication. Yeah, this is just, this is your place to be creative. Yeah, it's just a place where real creative technology can all get together. And I love, I spend my day, you know. I was going to say, your eyes light up when you're saying this. Oh, I love it. Well, it's very interesting. Have you ever, it's okay if you haven't, I, maybe it'd be a little weird. Have you ever Wikipedia'd yourself? No. Okay, so when you Wikipedia Howie Mandel, one of the sections says subject, and it says basically uh, the subject matter that you're known for in your comedy. Is what? So there's two, there's two words. I can't remember what the first one but is, but the second one says self-deprecation. Like that is, like if you go to your Wikipedia, it says self-deprecation is the subject of Howie Mandel, which is very interesting. But the reason I actually personally found it interesting, right? It's like, there's just so much context built into this. Like why is Howie Mandel at times uh, self-deprecating? Uh, I don't know if I'm self-deprecating as much as I have humility. You know, I believe that I'm just... I find that the reason people laugh more than anything is because they relate. Totally. Because they're uncomfortable in the elevator, because they said something stupid that kind of affected you in a weird way. We all have these stories. And if you share them, I don't like jokes. So if somebody comes up to me and says, you want to hear a joke? To be polite, I'll say, yeah, but I don't really enjoy jokes because it's not real. I mean, that's the thing, right? Your experience has informed basically all of the performances that you do because that's the only way you know to do it. And in some ways, not only does it make people laugh and feel related to, which obviously is important for you given the, the entire context of what you talked about with Deal or No Deal and your first contestant, but all of them. But in some ways, like it just feels like it's kind of therapeutic to you, right? It is. You know, uh, most of these stories and the couple I just told you now are uncomfortable moments. Yeah. And uh, I know that there are people that might have those same experiences that in the moment would be devastated. Yeah, even and if they don't have OCD. Right. Right. But if I laugh at it, that's that's the bridge. That's why you see a tragedy and comedy. Those two masks are so close together. They really are close together. You know, it could be something that's really embarrassing. Yep. Doesn't have to be a positive, but something that's really embarrassing. If I could find the funny in it, then that's how you survive it. And if you survive it and you share that with everybody, everybody knows what it's like to do something embarrassing. And everybody kind of, and if we can all laugh together, then I'm recreating that moment that I had with my parents when I was five years old and we're all laughing together. And there's nothing more comforting than to feel that you're not alone. And whether that be in laughter, in tears, just we're not alone. I love that. We're going to finish up with uh, a lightning round. Go ahead. Yeah. So the first question for you in the lightning round is, what is the most important thing that you do for yourself to take care of your mental health to this day? Distraction. Anything. Constantly saying yes. And 
One last question for you, which is what is the most embarrassing thing that's happened to you in your career? The most embarrassing thing happens every day. <laughs> Just showing up. I'm, I, I, I live embarrassed. Just standing in front of anybody with no plan. Yeah. In fact, even doing this podcast is a little embarrassing. You know, it, we got through it yep. and we're doing it, but public speaking is not easy for me. Embarrassment and fear is what drives me. All these thoughts are always swirling or if I'm even interesting, it's just- Just a broken record. I am a broken record and I'm broken. And I know a lot of other people are broken too. So I'm embarrassed but I'm embarrassed out loud. Howie, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Howie Mandel, to me, is someone who is an incredible doer and pivoter. Like he said himself, he is endlessly curious. And after our conversation, I got to walk around his studio and look at all of the businesses and inventions that he has personally invested in. He is someone who never let his inner child go, whether it was his playful humor or the idea of treating people the way you want to be treated, something that he reflected with his time on Deal or No Deal. In other words, our inner child is not a voice that we should quiet or be embarrassed about as we get older. And finally, I personally appreciated how honest Howie was about his own OCD because it made me feel seen in my own tendencies and my own journey with OCD as well. Now for you, the listener, whether it's OCD or any other challenge, I hope this conversation made you realize that you are not alone. Now, imposters listeners, we need your help. We would love to hear from you on how the conversations on imposters have impacted your life. How does this show help you in your career or your personal life? Are there any particular guests or episodes that have stood out to you? And tell me the stuff that you haven't liked, where you want the show to get better. Our goal is simple. We want to make this as valuable as humanly possible and make the show worthy of your time. So shoot me an email at alex at morningbrew.com and I'll get back to you as soon as possible. Imposters is a production of Morning Brew. Our senior producer is Vishnu Valbanani and Michaela Heck is our producer. Brian Henry is our executive producer and A.B. Silver is our booking producer. Our sound engineers are Dan Bauza and Rosemary Minkler. Emily Milliron is our video producer and Sarah Singer is our VP of Multimedia. Our theme song is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Original music in this episode is by Rosemary Minkler. 